Have you ever, have you ever felt like you got something that you didn't deserve from something that you said or, or something that you did that you knew was actually very positive and helpful. Like you really helped someone out, you had a project or you did something and it, went, it, was, it was good, it was really good, but you got kind of feedback or you got what you really didn't deserve from that. You poured your heart and soul into a project or a relationship and really instead of affirmation, what you got was little or no positive feedback whatsoever. Anybody ever had, you don't have to raise your hand or anything, but anybody had that happen before? You pour your soul and you get nothing or very little feedback and you know it was good and you know it was right and you know it was wonderful and you know it was, it was even transformative. Worse yet, sometimes that maybe you actually end up getting hurtful criticism or negative feedback or even nasty berating that you know you don't deserve that's totally undeserved. I was trying to think, okay, how have I experienced that? Have I ever experienced, or how have we maybe experienced getting what we don't deserve from doing something that we felt went really well? And then it just, it hit me actually this morning. If you've ever parented a teenager, <laughs> you know, you know exactly, it's coming, you know exactly what it's like to get what you don't deserve from doing what you feel is right and what you felt was helpful. I can still remember with all four of my sons, the same thing, just the grinding sometime of going, I'm just trying to help you, son. I'm just trying to, and then just getting back this, you're just judging me. Ah, you're just, I'm just like, oh, are you 18 yet? But, but just going, this is really hard. It's very, very difficult when we go through things like that. Well, here's what we're going to talk about. This morning, we're going to be looking at two situations where we're going to see Jesus is getting what he doesn't deserve for making it very clear who he is. Okay? He's going to get what he doesn't deserve for making clear who he is. And really my goal, just so you know, my goal, one, is to keep my voice. My goal for this morning is that we will all leave here with really a clear and really just a rejuvenated sense of what it is that Jesus deserves from each of us because of who he is and because of what he has done. Okay, that's my goal, that that's what we kind of leave here with. But also, I want us to leave with knowing how we can practically give him what we deserve. Oftentimes we talk about what we should give God, and do, but we don't, we don't talk about it. We're going to, once again, at the end, we're going to be teaching each other as we open this up again. So if you remember where we left off last time in Matthew's gospel, Jesus was being arrested. Remember, that was my last sermon. Jesus had been arrested, was being arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane after Judas had betrayed him. And as this happens, remember the last verse, all the disciples just bolted. They just left. They all, they all just scattered. Okay, so let's just pick up the story. Chapter 26 of Matthew, verse 57. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end, to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, though they may have, though many false witnesses came forward. 
Okay, so just like, remember we talked about this, just like the day before, in order to plot his arrest, okay, and to figure out a way to kill him, those religious bigwigs, all these guys that kind of, kind of come together, they have this kind of ad hoc meeting, they have this little gathering, this informal meeting at the high priest's palace. This time, though, they're doing it with Jesus. They've got Jesus with them this time, and they're seeking to find enough, enough evidence to be able to be able to have him executed, okay? To be able to sentence him to death, okay? The reality is, though, that, and we all know this, this trial or this plot against him really was a farce. They, I mean, these guys never intended on giving Jesus a fair trial. It was rigged from the, from the beginning. And um, you know what I forgot to do? I forgot to give you those little note things. I'm sorry. Let's take a second. They're in my bag right by... Um, by um, uh, Scott's feet. Give me a chance to rest my voice. Um, sorry, I've been sick this week and I didn't sleep past 2 a.m. this morning, so my brain is like, so I can't be responsible for like every word that comes out of my mouth this morning, just, just so you know. So these guys are <coughs> passing out uh, the note. If you want, the, these are those. These are notes that you can follow along if you like. Sorry about that, guys. Sorry, I forgot to pull those out. You can't do what I used to do with my youth group all the time. I would just fling it from here. I could always do that. It was dangerous when the pens went flying, but paper, not such a big deal. And Lee, you can probably turn that heater off too after you get back there. Probably turn the heater off when you get back there so we'll get stuffy in here. All right. So if you want to follow along, the reality, I said this trial was really a farce, okay? These guys never intended to give him a fair trial. So the first thing on your notes there is, in the religious leader's mind, the verdict had already been decided, okay? What they needed was a way to justify their, verdict, their guilty verdict, okay? They were looking for a way to say, okay, yes. They couldn't just say you're guilty, they needed to justify. You see, according to the law, they needed evidence that collaborated. One person couldn't just say, oh, look what, what, look what he did. They needed evidence that collaborated, and they were going to find some. Okay? They are, even if it was fraudulent, they were going to find them. They were on a mission. But we see in these verses, they couldn't find anybody. They couldn't find any stories that collaborated. So uh, we also see here, there's a brief mention of Peter following in a distance. And we're going to come back to that in a minute. Matthew's going to come back to that. That really kind of sets the scene for his denial, which we're going to look at in the last part uh, of our time here. Now, eventually, they do get two witnesses, okay? They get two witnesses that come forward with what seems to really, okay, this is a valid, uh, this is that valid evidence. This is it, okay? We saw him do something, so he said, okay? So look at the second half of verse 60, all the way to the first part of 63, it says this, at last, two came forward and said, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days, and the high priest stood up and said, you have, to, you have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. 
We know from in, in John's gospel, we read that when answering, remember when answering the people, remember when Jesus went into the temple and he was turning over the tables of the money changers and all that, and the, the priests and the people came and said, hey, what authority do you have to do this? Who said that you could do this? And remember what he said? He had said, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. Remember he said that? And that's number two on your little notes there. In saying this, he was speaking of himself. And the fact that after he is crucified, he will rise from the dead in three days, making him greater than the temple. That's what he was saying, okay? Now these witnesses, what they've done is they've misconstrued Jesus' words into meaning that he would destroy the actual temple, okay? So the priests, obviously what they're going to think when some guy stands up and said, oh, I'm going to destroy this thing in three days and build it, build it back up again. They just, he's like, What? So the high priest says he stands up and demands a response from Jesus to these charges. I mean, what do you say to that? These two per- people said they heard you. They heard you say that. What do you, what do you have to say? Now, here's the thing. It's really interesting. Jesus easily, very easily could have refuted these charges by just explaining. He could have just said, I never meant the actual temple. I meant me. I was talking about myself. I wasn't talking about the temple. Yet the interesting thing is, what he's doing here is he's actually fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. That's what's been so fun. I don't know if you've noticed this in going through Matthew. So often, we're diving back into the Old Testament. So often. So often people say, I don't spend a lot of time in the Old Testament. The New Testament makes more sense to me. The New Testament makes sense because of the Old Testament. You got to read it that way. You, You have to see it that way. And so that's what's happening here. Scripture is being fulfilled in the Old Testament prophecy. We see that Jesus remaining silent here concerning these, tra- these charges is actually what the prophet Isaiah wrote. Look what he says in, in Isaiah 53. He says, this is talking about Jesus here. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shears is silent. And so he opened not his mouth. So interesting. There's so much to that that we can impact. But we're going to see in a minute how that really impacts things. We see that Jesus, we, <laughs> this being silent, obvi- I, can't, I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall at this little tr- trial. Wouldn't it have been interesting? Here they're accusing Jesus, and it would have been interesting. Do you ever wonder if you can go, what, what do we like to go back in time sometimes and just see what would happen in a certain way? I have a feeling if we went back in time and we sat at this trial, we'd be going, Give it, come on, just tell him. Just tell him. But he doesn't. He says nothing. He knows what's, he's in complete control here. Okay? Now, look what, look what happens here. This just infuriates the high priest, I'm sure. I'm sure we would have seen someone just smoke coming out of this guy's ears. And he, but what's interesting about what's happening is here, now the high priest is going to ask a question that goes really to the heart. And he's really setting Jesus up here in a really great, great way. Look at verse, the second half of verse 30, 63. He says this. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And I can tell you right now, if we were that fly on the wall, we would see some people going absolutely berserk. 
absolutely berserk. These guys would have gone crazy at the, because although up to this point, Jesus hasn't really come right out and said specifically, yes, I am the long awaited Messiah. Really so much of what he's been teaching, so much of what he's been saying really gives these priests really reason to say, are you the Christ? I mean, they wouldn't have just said that because, oh, we saw you heal a guy. Are you the Christ? No, after all the stuff that he's been doing, it makes sense for the priest, the guy to go, are, do you claim to be the Messiah? Number three on your notes there, the high priest question is one that actually goes right to the heart of Jesus's mission. And what it does, it swings the door wide open for Jesus now to proclaim the truth concerning who he is to the highest court in Israel. You see what's happened here? These guys have set him up. Set him up just right. Instead of saying, no, you know what? No, I'm, I didn't mean that. And then going off on some tangent about the temple and trying to explain himself there, he lets them do it for him. And now they, they move it ahead. So not only does Jesus answer the high priest in the affirmative concerning being the son of God, he goes on to make this remarkable claim. This incredible claim that is just teed up for him to say, he says, as so, and then, remember, this is a guy that we can look like he's helpless, that uh, he's a victim of this bias court, this kangaroo court. What's he going to do? Number four on your notes there, Jesus now proclaims that he will actually be seen as the highest authority next to God himself. See what Jesus is doing here? Because of what scripture already said was going to happen in the Old Testament, Jesus is able to, up to this point, being silent when they make all these crazy accusations. But when they say, are you him? Now he goes for it. Now's the time. But not only am I the Christ, let me tell you exactly what that means. Let me give you a little taste of what that actually means. Okay? Here's what the, impl the implications here is really these tables, see what we're doing here? The tables are going to be turned pretty soon, okay? The one that's being judged by the religious leaders will soon be their judge. That could have gone over well. This phrase that he says, the right hand of power and the coming on the clouds in heaven, really this is, once again, a declaration of the fulfillment of the prophecy in Daniel. Look at this in Daniel chapter 7, says this, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to, who, to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that will not be destroyed. So this is what Jesus is telling him. This is who he's telling him that he is. He's laying it all out there. So what happens? Now hearing this powerful truth, hearing, okay, this is who I am, I just want you to know, you would think, okay, these chief priests, the chief priests, these people would give Jesus the response that he deserves. The religious leaders would give him what he deserves. Oh, this is the king of kings. This is the one who's going to have all glory and all dominion. Not so. Look what happens in verse 65. Then the high priest tore his robes and says, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? 
You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. Then they spit in his face and they struck him. Some slapped him saying, prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? Wow. You see, by placing himself at the right hand of God, basically essentially sharing God's throne to the religious leaders, what Jesus had done is absolutely stepped over the line. No human, no person in their mind could claim that. You do not do this. And number five in your notes for Therefore, according to the religious leaders, he was committing blasphemy, which means he had slandered or insulted God himself. That's what blasphemy is. He'd insulted God by saying, me, a mere person, who they thought only who he was, is putting myself on the same level as God. So these guys are going nuts. They just can't take it anymore. Now we see that uh, what these guys do, according, according to the Old Testament, that the penalty for blasphemy is what? Death. So that's what they want. They're, they, that, they're cheering for it. They want that to happen. We see now, and then we see what happens to these proceedings. Look how quickly things just, I don't want to reignite anything you said about this morning about what you went through. <laughs> but uh, if, if you heard about what happened at, at Hamilton this last weekend at, the, at one of the performances, um, there was an incident where, um, I don't want to get into too many details of it, but um, a woman was having a heart attack and people went crazy. Start, people started thinking there was a fire. People started screaming. Chaos went on. And Robin and her husband were actually there. <laughs> I uh, got to experience that. Pretty traumatic. Um, I had heard about it on the news. And, and the, I think if you've ever been in a, I don't want to say a mob situation, but in a situation where things get out of control and escalate like that when there's an emergency possibility or, or people can possibly hurt, things go quickly. Things, things accelerate fastly and fast. And this is exactly what happened in the trial. There might not have been a crowd there, but this is what happened to that trial. This trial just disintegrated and went right into abuse of Jesus. We see that he started to abuse him and kick, look at that, spitting on him and hitting him. I mean, it went right for it. Nothing like, oh, what, what should we, what should we? No, I'm sure these guys just pounced on him. It was a, very much a reaction, okay? All right. So the Old Testament prophecy said that he would go through this too. Once again, here we go. Isaiah said it in Isaiah 50. Look what he says. I give my back, and this is speaking of Jesus, I give my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Our Savior went through that. Our Savior fulfilled Old Testament prophecy by going through that, not exactly what you would think the king of kings deserves, right? I don't know if I, but you, but if I was in that situation, we have, I don't deserve this. I don't deserve this at all. And he didn't deserve that, but that's exactly what he got. Okay, now the scene completely shifts, okay? The scene shifts back to Peter, who we saw had followed Jesus from a distance. And here's what we're going to see here. What we're going to see is the fulfillment of Jesus' prediction of Peter's denial, which, remember, they tells him it would happen that very night. Remember, last, last, Jesus said, you're going to do this tonight. You are going to betray me. 
uh, three, you're going to deny me three times. And remember, remember P- Peter vehemently denied, you know, vehement. are you kidding? I would never do that. You know, with bravado, he said, are you kidding me? I'd rather die. Remember, I'd rather die than betray you. I will never do that. I want you to notice though, notice the escalation in these three denials. As we go, because we all know that Peter denied Jesus three times. But I think Matthew gives us a really interesting look at how fear and how deny things like that can slowly work their way into eroding what our commitments to Christ can be. So let's read the whole next section together, verses 69 to 75. Now, Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I don't know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him. And she said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know this man. After a little while, the bystanders came up to Peter and said, certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. We see here that Peter has followed Jesus to the courtyard of the high priest. It's this kind of semi-public area where the servants and slaves and lesser members of the house would kind of gather and congregate. It's here where, G- where Peter first denies Jesus. And in this, you'll notice in this counter with this servant girl, Peter's response, it's not necessarily in this explicit denial, is it? He de- he's not explicitly denying or renunciating his association with Jesus here. Rather, it's kind of like, it's almost like it's an appearance of ignorance. Huh? What, what, what are you talking about? I, 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 don't, I don't know. I have no idea what you're talking about. I don't, I, I don't speak your language. You know, I have no idea what, your, 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 uh, your butt's honking, just let you know that. <laughs> That's okay. Um, uh, so, th- so, he say, he, so his first action is, I don't know what's going on. I, I, I really don't know. So it's more of a denial. It's kind of like, eh, I don't know, I'm ignorant here. But Peter then slowly, we see that he slinks away towards the entrance. He's probably trying to get a little, he wants to kind of be around, but he wants to get a little more space between him and Jesus here. Okay, when another servant girl recognizes him and tells the people that she believes that he's associated with Jesus, this time Peter does outright outright deny that he knows Jesus, and he says it with an oath: "I swear." We've heard that in our world, right? I swear to God, I swear. That's like basically saying, you know what? There's no way I did that, or no way I know. So he says it: "I don't know him. I swear I don't." Now, as in third encounter, we see that Peter is outed by his northern accent, or probably his dialect that he's speaking. Again, he denies Peter with an oath, I swear I don't know him. Yet this time, look how far he goes. This includes, again, calling down a curse upon himself, if he truly did know him. Basically, he's saying here, if I know this guy, may I be struck dead right now. If I know this guy... May I get leprosy? May I, you know, get eaten by a lion, get run over by a train, whatever. You know, if I know this guy, no way. One of those things, let it happen. See how far he's gone? As the pressure 
More and more pressure is applied and his fear grows. Ever, ever felt like in your life you were being dominated by your fear? I know exactly what that's like. I grew up a very fearful person. So I know what it's like to let fear get the best of you. Many of you know exactly what I'm talking about. This is exactly what happened to Peter here. His fear got the best of him, and it grew, and it grew, to the point where he made a ridiculous, a ridiculous statement. Oh. I think we always think, "Ah, uh, that's pretty far. I think this teaches us, this shows us here, that the enemy will use whatever he knows will get at us, and fear of whatever it might be, what people think, fear of being hurt. I mean, for Peter, it wasn't, it was fear of what people think, and I would die. And it escalates. We're going to talk a little bit about a little more of that at the end here. Okay. Number six, we see that due to fear and pressure of being associated with Jesus, Peter succumbs to compromising his loyalty to Jesus. And really, after that, we see it's as if to scream that a reminder that what Jesus had predicted, what happens? The rooster crows. And at that moment, the full impact of what he has done hits him probably like a ton of bricks. And he goes out, it says he goes out and he weeps bitterly. Can you imagine what Peter's feeling at that point? One of the inner circle of Jesus. And he's sworn and be willing to be cursed Can you imagine, he was thinking, how did I get here? Ever been there before? How did I get here? In therapy, I've worked with people that are addicts and people that have gotten to a place that is just so far down the line, and they all say the same thing. I never imagined I would get this far. I never imagined that I'd be ruled by this thing. And I thought that was just kind of helping me to get, to get by. I never imagined. Yet it happens. So the full impact just hits him and he's just, he's, he's, he's just hurting by now. Peter wasn't able to give Jesus what he deserved. That's not what Jesus deserved. He ends up giving him what he didn't deserve. The religious leaders accuse Jesus of blasphemy and abuse. And they abuse him, I mean. Peter denies he even knows him. Now, you and, I, you and I may never get to the place where we refuse to believe that Jesus is who he says he is or that he's done what he says he's done. We might never, we'll probably, good chance of that, we'll never deny that we ever knew him. That probably won't happen. But here's the question that I get out of this morning's passage. What, the question is, I'm sorry, are we, what are, are we giving Jesus what he truly deserves from us? Are we giving him what he truly deserves? Because he is the highest, because he is the highest authority next to God himself, the very thing he just proclaimed. And because he has made a way for you and me to have an intimate relationship with the God of the universe. Number seven. What does Jesus ultimately deserve from you and I? Two things, mainly. Our adoration 
and our allegiance. Our, adela- our adoration and our allegiance. To adore Jesus means to, and I love these words, I found, the, to adore Jesus means to desire to delight in, to long for, to enjoy, to be satisfied in him above all else. I'm going to say it again. To adore Jesus means to desire, to delight in, to long for, to enjoy, and to be satisfied in him above all else. Number eight on your notes there. Adoration for Jesus is a natural response to his beauty, to his greatness, and to his glory. The natural response. If we are open, this is the response that we are going to have to Jesus. On the other hand, allegiance, number nine on your notes, allegiance, on the other hand, is the natural result of our adoration. It's the natural result. In my Bible reading this week, I'm doing a uh, read through the Bible uh, plan right now, and I came across in John chapter 14 in the New Testament portion where he says this. He says, if you love or adore, if you love or adore me, you will keep my commandments. And a few verses later, he says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Go to the next slide up there. Yeah, that's, I didn't think I'd yeah, let you know that. So these are the two verses that stuck out to me as I was studying. Interesting, I'm studying this passage. <laughs> I'm studying a passage about adoring, how to adore, and I come across these, these two verses. If you love or adore me, you will keep my commandments. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. You see, the result of adoration for Jesus Jesus is allegiance or obedience to his word. Yet oftentimes, I don't know about you, but it's easy for us to get that backwards. We think if we're obedient to Jesus, we are therefore loving him. Understand what I'm saying? We think that if I'm doing all the things that that the word says to do, then that naturally equates to the fact that I'm adoring him and I am loving him. The problem is, that's exactly what the religious leaders of the time were doing. They were doing the very same thing. They believed that their outward acts of righteousness made them righteous and therefore proved their adoration or love for God. See how much I love God? Because I'm keeping all these rules. See how much I love God? And at the door, God, because I'm not doing the things that those people are doing. See how they had it backwards? And we we do too. We get it backwards. I love this John Piper quote. John Piper says, loving Jesus is not a matter of doing excellent things. It's a matter of delighting in an excellent Savior. I love that. Loving Jesus is not a matter of doing excellent things. It's a matter of delighting in an excellent Savior. Let me ask you, as we end here, do you adore Jesus for who he is and what he has done for you? Do you long to experience his presence and to be satisfied in him above all else and to watch that naturally result in joyous and heartfelt allegiance to him and to his word. This, my friends, this is the Christian life. 
That's what the Christian life is. It's constantly learning to fall more and more and more in love with Jesus. I don't know about you, but I forget that a lot of times. My prayer so often is, God, help me to do, be wise, do this, which isn't fine. That's a fine prayer. But how often do I pray, help me to love Jesus? Because out of a love for Jesus is what will come obedience to Jesus and his word. Make sense? Because if the love and the the adoration isn't there, it just becomes legalism. And it has no weight to it. It has no depth to it. It means it's terrible. And after a while, it gets old. And when things get hard, we go, ah, what? Where when we're learning to love and adore Jesus more and more, when hard times come, when difficulty comes, we're able to step back and go, ah, this is hard, but I'm going to fall back into these these arms that love me. I'm loved. I am love. I want to challenge all myself, all of us in this, to this week, really to invite God. Ask God by the power of the Holy Spirit to empower you, empower you to experience this every day, to empower you to experience what it means to adore, to love Jesus. After all, it's, it's what he deserves. We've been talking about what does Jesus deserve? He deserves our adoration, and he deserves our love, and he deserves our allegiance. And really, we're going to find that's where we get the ultimate fulfillment in life. Now, I want to ask you a couple questions, because I need your help as we wrap this up, because I need to learn more. Um, First question I want to ask you, and this is no mic going around, just raise your hand. I'd love to hear some responses. What are some things that get in the way of giving Jesus our adoration and our allegiance? What are some things that get in the way of giving Jesus our adoration and allegiance? Buck. Pride. Oh, yeah. How, how might that play itself out? Tell you what, I'm doing pretty good. What did you want? Yeah. I'm doing great. Yeah, I'm not that bad. Scale of goodness is getting pretty heavy around that side. Yeah, yeah. great one. What else? What else? What are some things that get in the way of giving Jesus adoration and allegiance that he deserves? Undisciplined life. Very good. Yeah, Dan. Totally. I can relate. Oh. So much. Yeah, Phil. Good one. Yeah, so good. Like, <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, where do we begin, right? <laughs> exactly. No, yeah, exactly. Yeah, distraction, that's a, that's a great one. Yeah. Wait. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, definitely. Okay, good. Second question. Is anyone willing, and I don't know that this would be great if everyone wants to, is anybody willing to share about a time when either at the moment or later you realized that in some way you had denied Christ to others or to someone? I'll start with my, with my wife. 
because I, I asked her these questions yesterday. I said, what do you think about this question? This is a hard one. She says, oh, I, can, I could answer that. She's in the nursery right now. And she said that she can remember a time a few years back when she was at the hairdresser and uh, the, the gal doing her hair was absolutely just lambasting Christians. Um, just out loud, just, just totally just not just. And she, she felt like, well, she obviously she had that battle. Wait, she's doing my hair. But, <laughs> but she really realized afterwards by not saying something. She did, I mean, she wasn't wallowing in guilt or anything, but she really felt like I needed to say something. I needed to say, what you're saying is offensive to me. I do believe these things. That was, that was her, uh, her example, and I never deny, so I had to use her. Kidding, kidding, kidding. kidding. <laughs> Anybody think of another one where this might have played out? Yeah, Dan. And that happens to all of us, doesn't it? How many of us could stand? Yeah. How many of us could give that same testimony that Dan's given that we know that the Lord was prompting us to say something and we didn't? I'll raise my hand a hundred times on that one. Yeah. Or, yeah, or I held back. I gave the soft pedal maybe or just something like that. Oh, yeah, we can all, all relate to that. Thanks, Dan, for sharing that. Okay, next question. Uh, what characteristics would be evident in the life of someone who gives Jesus their complete adoration and allegiance? Let's just get really practical here. Okay, what are some character? What characteristics would be evident in the life of someone who gives Jesus their complete adoration and allegiance? Just throw some. Yeah, Lisa, joy, joy for sure. Yeah, what's that? Not judgment. Not judgment. Yeah, yeah, something that we Christians are accused of quite often, huh? Yeah, good. Peace. Peace. Yeah. What else? Peace. What's that? Peace, yeah, peace, not, yeah, not just, uh, yeah. no, no, 
He beat you. <laughs> it's a competition. Yeah, it is, yeah. Air the characteristics. Yeah. Totally, yeah. In an appropriate manner. Exactly. That's a great one, yeah. We would, can you imagine when we're, when I, I can imagine if I'm, my adoration for Jesus is at a top level all the time, I'm going to be looking for opportunities, right? I'm going to be, or I'm going to see them a lot clearer when the Holy Spirit leads. So yeah, that's a, that's a great one. Sharing our faith more. Yeah. Anybody else? Exactly. Not, yeah, not just a notch. Yeah, not just because I have to do it. Yeah, Carol? Mm, yeah, kind of ties in with the judging thing here. Yeah, mm-hmm. big time. Yep. Wow. That is so good because you're right. Judging and our attitude towards others, when, when we're struggling with that stuff, that can give us a, that's a good indication of our adoration for Jesus. It really is. Because the more we love Jesus, the more we see people like he does. So that, yeah, exactly. Last one. What does it mean to you to adore Jesus? How have you experienced the joy and fulfillment of allegiance to Jesus and his word? Anybody here, had you just experienced it in your own life? You've just sensed, oh, not, you're not tooting your horn. This isn't a toot horn time. You know, this is, I know that's not what you're saying. We need to be able to let each other know when we've succeeded as well. Okay, not us succeeded, but when God has worked in and through us and helped us to truly love and understand Jesus. So that's neat because that her first reaction was not to just go pull her hair out. Her well, she pulled a few, but was to go. I got to go to Jesus because his love for me, and he might give me the answer. He might not. That's that's a that's a great one. Anybody else? Last anybody? Yeah, Carol. so good. Yeah. There's nothing more joyous and more fulfilling, really, than being, having seen God be faithful when we are allowing our love for him to play out in our allegiance to his word 
and it's just the joy. I remember, I'll just close with this, when I was 19 years old, is when I really, 18 is when I really caught fire for the Lord, I feel like. And shortly after that, about 19, we used to go, I lived in Redondo Beach, and we used to go, Redondo Beach Pier used to be, a, it's a horseshoe, but full of restaurants. And so we thought, okay, you know what? We are just so in love with Jesus, we got to tell people about him. So we would, that was back in the, you know, the track, those Christian tracks things, you know? So we would go down, pack on Friday night when it was packed, and we'd shove all these tracks, and then we'd go and share Christ with People coming out of the restaurants, the fishermen out there and things like that. We were scared to death. I mean, we almost threw up every time when we were doing it. But we were so in love with Jesus that we knew that we needed to share. And we were doing this in other ways as well with our friends and things. But let's start, let's start doing this even more. And I got to tell you, the joy that we experienced, I mean, the incredible joy that we experienced, I don't think one person received Christ while we did that. But the conversations we had... The joy that filled our hearts, driving home with Petra blaring in the, you know, old Christian rock and roll blaring because we were just so stoked and so excited about doing what we felt like he asked us to do. And, and it wasn't about the results. It wasn't at all about the results. Results would have been, better results would have been nice, but it was about we love Jesus and we wanted to do what he wanted us to do. So that was a fun, that was a fun time in life and I longed for that fire continually. So let me pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. Thank you how it transforms our lives, how it challenges us, how it makes us want to be more like Jesus. Yet God, we confess right now, we confess that we fall so short. We know our sin nature. We know how oppressive it is. So God, we want to renew right now, just quietly in our own hearts, God, how much we know we can't love you on our own. We need your help. God, help us to be deeper and deeper in love with your son. Help us to be obedient, not because we have to, but because we can't wait to, because the incredible love that's given to us. In his name we pray, amen.